promise, Lord, never again. But I also know that you know what a weak willed person I am. Don't regret this, Lord. I'm a wonderful person. Let us pray. Gracious God, send forth your spirit by the power of your word to create faith, to forgive sin, and to grow our love for you and for one another. Amen. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Last Sunday, I got caught. Not, nothing bad. I'm, I'm not in the police blotter in the newspaper, I promise. We were at Pizza Factory after, after services. It's kind of a custom in our house that we normally go out to eat after lunch. I'm the cook in the family, or after services. I'm the cook in the family, and, and so uh, after getting done with services in the morning, uh, even my first call, I had two churches, and I, I was too tired to cook anything, so we'd go out to eat. I'm lazy that way. I, I just ask God for forgiveness for that. So but we're at Pizza Factory, and we're getting done ordering, and it's time to order drinks, and I, I turn, and we're kind of surrounding the poor guy, and I'm like, Pop? Pop, pop, pop. Yeah, four pops. My daughter had to grab my arm and go, Dad, they don't say that here. Because <laughs> you see, growing up in California for me, I've spent 25 years in Minnesota, but growing up in California, you'd normally just say Coke, right? And it meant anything. That was a soft drink. Well, in Minnesota, if you order a Coke, you get a Coke. Uh, here in California, you, get a, you say, I want a Coke, and it could be, well, do you want Diet Dr. Pepper? Do you want 7 Up? Something like that. At least that's how it was when I was, when I was growing up. So after 25 years in Minnesota, I, I at least have some of the lingo down. Like, I'm told I have to say hot dish, not casserole, right? And so coming back to California, I kind of need to relearn some of that, although from like birth, I've always used dude as an adjective and a noun and all those things. So that's not a problem. But the only thing is, is that you can learn all the lingo. You can have the right words, right? And still be an outsider. I had a lot of the Minnesota lingo down, but the problem is, is I really didn't fit into what was Minnesota. The last five years, we've lived in, nor- we lived in northern Minnesota, where fishing and hunting and snowmobiling and ice fishing and hockey and all that stuff was like life. And I'm looking around going, okay, I don't fish. I have nothing against it. I just don't fish. I don't hunt. Sitting out in the woods in a deer stand not shooting anything for like the first week in November to me just like sounds like the seventh ring of hell. (laughs) I I really don't like winter, so being on a snowmobile and approaching it at 60 miles an hour, that's like, no, not not my thing. I can't skate, although my wife has brought me over to the dark side of hockey. I do like watching it. And then ice fishing is just an excuse to go and drink away from your spouse without being nagged. That's, That's what ice fishing is for. But none of that was me. I lived there. I knew the culture and all that stuff. But I'm like, I don't do any of this. The guys would sit around at the table during coffee hour and they'd be talking about all these. And I'm like, yeah, um, it's cold outside. That's about all I got for you. But that can be good and bad in the sense of at least knowing the lingo or, or, or whatnot, being, being worried about whether we're part of the culture or not. It's good because we understand diversity and variety, right? 
Variety is a gift that God has given us. If we were all the same, life would be boring. And we'd probably be killing each other anyways, right? It's bad because then we take those things and we use it as a club. More often than not. We, we use it as something to beat each other up, to divide ourselves, to put ourselves in boxes. That's how I like to, like to explain it. The, the division, we see that in our country today, right? Us versus them. Picking the various different things, doesn't matter. The church you go, you go to, the, the clothes you wear, the food you eat, uh, the color of your skin, the language you speak. Pick one, and we use it to beat each other up all the time. And so we can, we can have similar language, but the sinner in us has a nose for finding the division. And often it's because it makes us feel better, right? If we can knock somebody down a few little notches and we're up here, we're like, <laughs> at least I'm not them. Or it makes us feel safe because we can create our own little bubble that we live in. And so we can say, okay, I- I'm okay. At least I'm not out there. Or, or then we turn it into a savior complex where we're able to put people in a particular category We say, okay, I have to save them, or ourselves, one or the other. And part of the problem that we have before us this morning when we're in Ephesians is that the worry of the church was division. Before, it was all Judaism all the time, and now you have the church where people like centurions and Ethiopian eunuchs are being brought in, and the church is trying to have to figure out, what do we do with the Gentiles and the Jews here? What do we do with a Jewish Messiah and the nations? How, how Jewish do you need to be to be considered in? How, how, how in do you need to be in order to be part of the club? And that's where we find Paul in Ephesians, fighting against our exclusionary tendencies. Last week, we heard Pastor Chris uh, preaching out of chapter 1, which is this glorious chapter where he's talking about peace in Christ through get grace, through gift in Jesus. If you take the time to go back and read just chapter 1, alone. You you find out that your identity of who you are in Christ is tied to those two words, in Christ. Ten times Paul says that all the things, election, predestination, salvation, good works, all these things are tied to those two words, either in him or in Christ. It happens ten times just in this one long run-on sentence that Paul has. And so now then we have chapter two. And I'm sorry, we skipped over the Lutheran section. In the narrative lectionary, they don't want to let you have the first half of chapter 2 because that is the Lutheran section. This, this whole chapter is about the unity of the body of Christ through Christ, through grace, through gift. But most of us know the first half of the chapter pretty well. We have the t-shirt, we have the coffee mug, we have the bumper sticker, right? We are saved by grace, grace through, and this is not of... Yeah, not of ourselves, but it's the gift of, yes, we all know that one. We're good at that one. We can recite that one all the time, and it makes us feel really good about ourselves. But then you can step back and go, well, saved from what? From hell? Well, yeah. From wrath? Yeah, it's talked about in here that, that before Christ, we were children of wrath there in the first, first uh, section. It's page 184 in the Pew Bibles, by the way. But the first verse kind of gives it away. It says our salvation is actually from death and sin. You are dead through trespasses and sins. 
And then later on, he says, even when we were dead through our trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ, telling us that death is the big enemy, sin as well. And that actually goes all the way back to Genesis 3. Death actually is the curse placed upon us for our sin, in part to help us understand we are not God. If you go back and you read Genesis 3, you can do that this afternoon. It, it, the, the whole section about, about creation in chapter 2 and stuff, it starts out pretty good. Then we get to chapter 3 and everything goes haywire because they eat of the fruit, right? And what does it say? Their eyes are opened. Before that, it says they were naked and unashamed. Their eyes were closed. But then their eyes are opened. And Eve looks at Adam in all his dad bod glory and goes, Wow. I'm stuck with this guy? And then Adam looks at Eve and goes, wow, you're kind of wrinkly and a little gray around the edges. I wonder if I can get a younger model. Because their eyes are opened and they judge themselves. They, They suddenly need to make clothing for themselves because they're able to look at each other and go, wow, wow. But then God comes and says those words that we hear at Ash Wednesday, right? You're dust. To dust you shall return. Wanting to make sure that we realize we're not God. Even though we tried to become that, God says, okay, no. And so death comes to us, whether we like it or not, as God's saying, you're not God, but I am. The second half of this chapter, which were our sermon text this morning, it's all about wondering then, what do we do with this Christ in the midst of all our division, our Gentile, Jew, religious, non-religious, believer, non-believer thing? What do we do with Jesus? What does Jesus mean for the Old Testament? What does he mean for the promises? What does he mean for all the things that were given to, to, to Israel if he's a Jewish Messiah? What does that mean for the Romans and the Greeks and, and the Californians? What what does Christ mean for the non-Jew? And so he's speaking to all of us outsiders this morning. Whenever you read Gentiles, that's you, unless you're Jewish, which there could be. There could be someone in the room that's that. But if you're not, this is all about you. He speaks to all of us outsiders, and he wants us to remember something, right? He says, so then remember that at one time you were Gentiles by birth, which what does that mean? That means you can go back and look in the Old Testament and all those genealogies. You're not going to find your daddy there. You're not going to find your grandpa there. The genealogies were important. They wanted to make sure that you were part of this tribe. You were part of this line. You were part of all these, all these things. You were part of the in crowd telling us near, though, that no, you're not part of that. You're Gentiles by birth. You are outside of, you have no genealogy. Your, your line of descent means nothing. And then the uncircumcision. What does that mean? Well, you don't have the covenant. You don't have the promise given to Abraham. That's for Abraham and his descendants, right? Abraham, I'm going to make of you a great nation. You don't have the genes. And with that, the promise. Add to it then, he goes on, Right? That you were at that time without Christ. There was no Jesus. Being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope. That should kill us. Having no hope. And even worse, even worse, without God. 
Nothing to cling to, nothing to hold to. We need to remember this, church, because we live post-Calvary. We live post-Jesus. We always read things and we're, we're doing fine. We're oh, I've got Jesus and all these things. He's saying to us right now, if the cross hadn't happened 2,000 years ago, this is you. Right now. No God, no hope, no Jesus, no promises, no covenant, nothing. You're out of it. You'd have your local gods. Ephesus had their local god, Artemis or Diana. We read about that in Acts 19. Things don't go so well because Paul's there and he causes a riot because he's preaching and people are getting saved and they're throwing away their idols and the silversmiths are getting all upset because they're like, dude, we make all these idols and no one's coming to our marketplace anymore. Our temple to Diana, to Artemis, is going to be nothing. Well, we would have had our local God. We would have had this God that we'd have this little statue and we'd do these things. But then you could go to another city and there'd be another God. And you'd go to another place and there'd be another God. And, and so we had all these little, little deities. But what it's telling us is that we're not part of the Exodus. We don't have that God. We don't have the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We don't have the living God. We're, we're not Israel. We, the, the, the story of the Exodus, the story of the plagues, all those things, that's not our story at least not before Jesus, but then. But then we get some of the most beautiful language in all of the scriptures. Verse 13, which was my sermon text. But now. But now. Before, something else. But now, right now, in the present, you have something. Now what? In Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought new, near. You, you who were once outside of the club are now in the club. You who were once in this box, now you're in this big box. This declaration that that you were far away, you are outside. Now, because of Jesus, you're inside. You're in the club. The genealogy means nothing anymore. And what does it come from? How, How are we inside now? Well, by the blood of Christ. Blood that hides who you were. Blood that washes away the stains of your promiseless life. Blood that pays the entry fee to get into the club, to get you past the velvet rope, to make sure your name is on the list so the bouncer doesn't throw you out. Blood that becomes a declaration of peace. He is our peace. It's on the church sign. You have to believe it, right? He is our peace. But not only that doesn't mean anything to us unless we realize that our life is actually one of war. Warfare. A war to try and fit in. A war to get out of one box and into another box. A a war to measure up. A war to meet a standard. Just think of high school or junior high. Those of you who are in the in crowd in junior high and high school, God bless you. I was not. And I'll just tell you, junior high is brutal. I have a son who's just coming out of junior high. Brutal. Pray for all your junior high teachers. High school, too. Think of the hostility between people groups there. Think of the hostility of trying to fit in, of what clothes to wear, how to dress, all these things. And we carry those things with us, even down to today. We spend our entire lives trying to to reach for something that David Zoll calls enoughness. Trying to be enough, whatever that might look like. But then we come to the scriptures here, and what does it say? It tells us of something he has done. He's brought unity. He has broken down the dividing wall that is hostility between us. 
The dividing wall can be many things. I think of the temple in Jerusalem, where you had the inner courts, where all the Jewish men were able to go. Then you had those outer courts, which that was left for us. We could maybe hear the mumbling of the prayers inside. We could maybe smell the sweet perfume of the sacrifice. But we weren't in the in crowd. We weren't part of that. The, the, the outer courts is where Jesus comes and gets rid of the market, right? Because people were making it impossible for the Gentiles to have a place to worship. Well, here it says that he's come and he's destroyed that dividing wall. He's taken it down. There's no division with that anymore. And then he tells us that we're no longer strangers or aliens, but we're citizens, we're members of the household of God. Before my wife and I got married, uh, we each came from particular lives, particular traditions, particular, particular cultures. She's very German. She was born there. I was not. Um, but we get married, and suddenly... We are joined into those two things. Every time I do premarital counseling, one of the first things we do is we do a family tree of each person, and then we sit here and go, okay, you're getting this, and you're getting this. How do you feel about that? You get all this dysfunction, and you get all this dysfunction, so we're just going to bring the dysfunction up to 11. We're going to make it an exponential dysfunction, I, and then I tell them just to let you know, marriage is hard, you basically are promising not to kill each other for the rest of your lives, right? And anytime you take two sinners and put them into close contact, things are not going to go well usually. Sometimes they can. There's beautiful moments. But then there's other times where it's like, wow, I have to put up with this for another 20 years? But then we get joined together in these things, and suddenly, whether I like it or not, those traditions are mine and mine are hers. Christmas traditions and vacations. and At one point, I was not part of the family, and then finally, you are. Before marriage, there would be the asking for permission if Carlton could come along to this. Now, with marriage, it's like, sorry, I'm coming. I'm the son-in-law. I have a title. I get in. Well, it's the same with Christ now, because we have that but now statement in the blood of Jesus. Now you have the promises of God. Now you are part of that great nation. You are part of that great nation. Before, back in Exodus 20, when God gives the Ten Commandments, there's a word spoken there, which before Jesus meant nothing to you, where it begins with, and the Lord said all these things, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods. That was a word for Israel, not for us. Now with Jesus, what does it tell us? You have a God. And it's a God who speaks to you all the time. And then the greatest transition of all, and this is the one that I often talk about with with our youth and our confirmation kids, uh, or I will be anyways, uh, is then you move from Exodus 20, where God says, I am your God, and then you move to Psalm 31, 14. I trust in you, O Lord. I say, you are my God. This movement from God saying, I'm your God, to us suddenly saying, no, you're my God. And that is the work of faith in us, where God doesn't become this abstract thing anymore, but becomes ours and includes all these promises. It includes this promise given to David, right? Because Christ has that title, the son of David, to where now we have a king. He's a particular king, and he's a particular king that does certain kingly things, and he's ours. Or John 10, 16, I have sheep who are not of this fold, and I got to bring them in. Well, with that word, then, suddenly we get all the promises that we hear in Ezekiel 34. 
where God says, I myself will search for my sheep and I will seek them out. I'll rescue them. I'll bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries. I will feed them. I myself will be their shepherd. I'll make them lie down. I will seek the lost. I will bring back the strayed. I will bind up the injured. I will strengthen the weak. You're in. You have those promises now because of Christ. All these things that weren't yours are now yours all because of Christ, all because of the cross, all because a Jewish Messiah and a Roman cross kissed. And all the things that weren't yours are now yours. All the things that were old have been made new through him. Gone are the attempts for you to get in the will on your own. Gone is what I term the multi-level marketing of religion. Where some of us are down here and others are up here and our goal is to work our way up here. No, it's this level playing field now because of Christ. You're in the will because of him. You're in the will because he's put you there. In the Heidelberg Disputation, I think it's either Thesis 21 or 24, Luther writes, the law says do this and it's never done. Think about that. A law comes to you and says, do this, do it. So I go to my wife and I say, love me. How do you think that's going to go? Not very good, right? Or you go out here and you have the speed limit sign. It tells you don't drive faster than this. Does it give you the power not to drive that fast? Most of you could look back in your driving record and find out, no. (laughs) And then the second half of the thesis then says, grace says, believe this. And it's already yours. Trust, believe, hold to those things. To where that law and the demands, he says, have been destroyed. Those expectations of the boxes have been destroyed. Those expectations of of how we become part of the in crowd have been destroyed. And now we're left with Christ. So all the attempts that we've tried to make of ourselves something have become nothing because in him we have everything. Thanks be to God. Amen.